นโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนัมสัง
But he got to the point, he was telling me that he got to the point where he realised, well, actually, I'm going to a monastery, I'm going to a place, you know, that's about contentment, and here I am, boiling, furious, enraged, actually. I mean, he really lost his rag, because he rang the chairman of the trust, and, and the chairman reported to the trust meeting <laughs> how this otherwise unflappable trustee lost his rag. But he, he, re, he reclaimed it uh, very quickly at the point where he realised, and he recognised, well, actually... What's the point of going to a monastery? What's the point of going to a spiritual sanctuary? Uh, so sometimes things happen and, and uh, you get frustrated. And Well, without a, a conscious, I think, without an intentional commitment to contentment, we can very easily lose this. And, uh, so putting this sign-up down there has been very interesting because one of the things I've noticed is that uh, I have to practice it. You know, it's quoting me, and I put it up. And so I have to practice when, when I go down there and there's people who are discontented, I've got to be contented, and that's actually very helpful. It's not always easy. You know. <laughs> you know, the ceilings are too low, you know, or, or whatever. You know, something, something's not going right down there. And, and if I'm not careful, if I don't practice conscious contentment, <laughs> Then my mind can go into habitual reactions. Yeah, think about all the goodness that's gone into providing this place and the years and the effort of work. And the ceiling's too low? I mean, you know, I mean, get real. I mean, there's central heating? Anyway, so I think um, that's why I put this notice up. Because the world is, is so... If we're not careful, the worldly tendency can spoil the goodness. That's it. That's the point I'm trying to make. That, you know, we make all this good effort, and if we're not alert to this risk, then the good effort is, is spoiled. It's like you, know, you put a lot of energy into uh, generating heat in a house, and somebody leaves all the doors and windows open. It's a pity, isn't it? And it's, it's counterproductive. So. So it's good to see where, uh, where this happens. Like, I understand some of you were a little inconvenienced getting here this evening because there were some riots in Newcastle. Um, Michael Owen, apparently. Um, some of you know who he is. He's somebody who they pay a lot of money to stay home sick. Um, so anyway, apparently he redeemed himself tonight and all this afternoon, and he, he scored... Two, not tries, that's rugby, isn't it? What do you call them? Goals. He scored two goals, and Sunderland apparently were, were completely uncomposed on the pitch. Is it a pitch? Okay. And, and then that lack of composure apparently spilt out onto the streets, and uh, there were riots, I'm told, and um, some of you nearly didn't make it tonight. And, well, you see something. I mean, there's a huge amount of passion invested in... And what? And getting off on, actually, you know, what a lot of... I mean, organised sport can be an interesting way of managing your testosterone. You know, that's okay. But it, it, once it goes past a certain point, really, actually, it's a, it's a compounding of a, um, a mental disorder. You know, it's like the habit of feeding on discontentment. And so the reason I'm raising it this evening, the reason I put that sign down there is is so that when we catch ourselves uh, falling into 
that. We don't then uh, play that game of being discontented with our discontentment. We remember the refuge and we fall back into awareness. Whatever the trigger is, body awareness, mental awareness, emotional awareness, relational awareness, feeling awareness, falling back into that place of remembering what we came here for. What we can do, that's the other way of putting it, I think. Remembering what what is possible, what we have faith in, what we what we trust in. And I think that's why, you know, why, why faith or why trust is so powerful because when the habits of, for instance, discontentment, uh, the other habits we have, the passions flare up, they can be so strong. You know, we really feel righteous in our indignation and and it's like, I mean, it is, it's a chemical, isn't it? It's just like any other drug. You get a rush. You know, it's just like other chemicals, like sugar. I mean, what a drug. I mean, wow, you can get a real rush of sugar. It's such a rush. And, you know, because we're identified as this body-mind, you know, it feels like me is having a rush. And so, yeah, we can get, we can get off on, on our habitual discontentment. And, and so something like faith, really clear, well-inspected, tried and tested, trust in that which is unshakable, trust in the inherent security of the refuge of awareness itself, to remember that, to come back to that, and to make something out of that, to make a lot out of that. This is why I personally encourage in, in myself, practice in myself and encourage in others the practice of bowing as a bodily gesture, you know, we bow down in front of that which symbolizes a perfect contentment. And the Buddha lived, abided as, from the age of 36 until he died in a state of perfect contentment. It wasn't complacency, it wasn't laziness, it wasn't unawareness. He realized that which we trust is possible for human beings, a state of unshakable contentment. And so that which symbolizes it for us, you know, for instance, the Buddha image or the Dhammachaka wheel or the empty seat or the Bodhi tree, these other symbols we have, they not, don't just merely represent, but they are invested with uh, the perception of this possibility, the possibility of realization of this. And so as with our body and with our speech, we bow down uh, in front of this symbol of course, we're not projecting out onto it our responsibility, but, but we are making us coming into a conscious relationship with that possibility within ourselves. Yeah, that's what we do when we bow down. We, uh, with the whole body-mind, we, we uh, make this gesture and we remember, reconnect, and, and so we get strengthened in the process. And so that gesture of faith, of confidence, of trust, uh, strengthens the connection we have with that uh, that intuition, that possibility that we have within ourselves. Also, it can help to remind ourselves not to get, not to fall into discontentment uh, out of heedlessness. Uh, if when we see it, or we ourselves experience it, that we reflect on how unattractive it is. You know, when you, when you see 
And I, and those of you that saw the riots this evening, I mean, I, I've seen some of these things before, and there's something not really human when uh, people get caught up in that state. You know, there's something that takes takes over, and uh, you feel afraid. You know, because I think it's because you're, you're sensing something. You know, like you can probably smell it, although we may not be conscious of it. There's something takes over, and it's uh, it's frightening. It's out of control. It's dangerous, and very unattractive. Yeah, when I was on a on a flight to our monastery in Switzerland um, a year or so ago, and I think there might have been Sunderland supporters then too, or maybe they're Middlesbrough. Excuse me if there's any Sunderland supporters here this evening. Or excuse me if they're Middlesbrough supporters, I don't know who they were, but they were at Newcastle. And they were flying to play, to watch a game being played in Switzerland. And uh, I had never quite seen this, uh, you know, uh, English hooligan, football hooligans uh, on EasyJet. I'd never seen it before. I'd heard about it, but it was really unattractive. Uh, really unattractive. And I I sat there through this whole flight just listening to the language they were using, the way they were talking to the hostesses, and, and uh, it's just everything about the smell and the, the drinking and everything about it was just a really... You say, is this, uh, is this something that I want to cultivate? You know, no. But actually, when we allow, allow ourselves to fall into habitual discontentment, in a way, that's what we are doing. You know, just, we're playing that game. When we were about to get off the plane, they, um, one, of the, one of these guys came up and pulled on my robe and he says, oh, my mate, he asked you if you'd pray for us to win. And I looked at it and I said, I support Newcastle, <laughs> which I'm told it was a dangerous thing to say. And um, I could say it because just there and then I decided I supported Newcastle, so I wasn't lying, but, um, yeah. Perhaps wasn't the most skillful thing to do, but I didn't quite know what to do when he asked me to pray for him. So um, I actually, I, I do know I wanted to say something. I wanted to give a message. I wasn't going to crack it. Well, I suppose it was a joke in a way, but I didn't want to dismiss it either. I mean, when human beings behave like that, I think we, we do have the power, we do have the ability to actually stand and say, no, I don't go along with that. You know, it's like it happens in the office, at work, uh, where there's this habitual discontentment is, is, is going around, that there's a certain electricity, you know, a certain chemical that's, just, that's there that we can, we can contribute to or we can just pull back from and say, no, I'm not part of this. And so I think making it conscious, you know, saying, no, I'm, co- I'm committed to contentment, yeah. to being contented, not to becoming contented when I get what I want. I mean, that's, that's something else. You know, that's why I said contentment's not the goal of practice. Contentment is the way. Is being contented. And sometimes, of course, people mishear that and think that you're talking about being complacent. And it's not about being complacent. It's not about closing your eyes. It's not about uh, not seeing the imbalance or the injustice you know, that's around outwardly or inwardly. But it's, it's, not, it's what we don't do. At the point that we see something that's off, or some of you just don't, don't, don't like, for that matter. Yeah. Some behavior outwardly, or some of our own behavior. There's the possibility to react. And to become discontented. 
that's, that's, that's easy to do. But if we look at it, is it productive? Is it what we want to do? Does it help me? Does it help others? No, no, no. And so what do we do about it? Well, that's the thing. At, at that point, you know, to see where we have the choice. Yeah. This is why you know, we, we sit for hours in meditation. You know, it's not that you know, somehow sitting in meditation is going to turn us into, into saints or something, but every time we restrain the mind from wandering off into habits of thinking, or habits of fantasizing, you know, the tendency is very strong, the tendency is there. Every time we restrain the mind, bring the mind back, you know, that's what we're doing. We're cultivating a certain strength, a certain power, a certain ability, a capacity. And so then in daily life, when we're confronted with the upthrusts of passions, of indignation or whatever, yeah, there's, this, there's this counterforce. We have this ability. We find we've got the strength. So we don't just get pulled into old habits. You know? So it's not just an act of will is not going to do it. So if we have exercised this ability consistently, uh, consciously enough for a period of time, then you see at the moment where it's about to happen, we're about to invest in this, so, you know, this situation and create discontent. Say, don't have to do it. Say, no, don't have to do it. Say, that's the point. That's the point where we can make a difference. Yeah. That's the point where we can stop football hooligans. That's the point where we can stop what's going on in Tibet. That's the point where we can yeah. make a very realistic, positive contribution to contentment in the world. Now, of course, I'm not saying that's the only thing we do. You know. That's another way of mishearing this, uh, this contemplation to suggest that the only thing we do is, is sit and watch uh, our minds. And, well, there is a time when we we find we have this inner ability. We're not just coming from reactivity. That sometimes you can, you know, go and say a few things that are sometimes even strong things. There's, there's certainly a point in a time and a place for criticism. But uh, criticism is very different from complaining, at least the way I use those words. Complaining, uh, as I see it, is, is like complaining is like somehow projecting out responsibility for our suffering. It's asking somebody else to take responsibility for our pain. Whereas we're doing the pain by investing in, a, in an unskillful way in the situation. You know, something dislikable happens, we react, we invest in it, and so we suffer. And instead of taking full responsibility for that, we send the energy out and we blame, we, we sue, we criticize, or we complain. Yeah, the same you know, skillful criticism, well, there's a time and place for it. But if we haven't learned how to not, not just react, well, then we're probably not going to be able to do it very well. And so we have these teachings the Buddha gave on skillful criticism, which are really helpful. Right time, right place, right words, right motivation. Yeah. So if we've got something going on that we're not, not happy about, you know, sometimes you've got to go and tell somebody something, and, uh, yeah. and it's the responsible, appropriate thing to do. But we just stop and we say, okay, we, we want to get this right. We want to be effective in communicating. We don't want to increase any suffering for ourselves or others. So how do we do it? So we just go through this checklist, right time. So you've got to get the timing right. You know, you, you feel, you start, how do you say, how do you, get, how do you know it's the right time? Well, it's like saying, how do you know it's the right time to eat? Say, so, well, I feel ready to eat. 
We all know when we feel ready to eat, don't we? Somebody says, I want eat this food. So, well, I don't feel ready to eat. We know. Well, that's the thing. We can ask ourselves, do I feel ready and do I sense that this person's ready to hear this? Do I feel ready to say this? Because, you know, we can come from an idealistic perspective of saying something that we think we should say and they should hear, you know, all that. And, uh, but we push past this feeling we have, well, actually, it's not the right time. I don't feel ready yet. I've been in meetings um, sometimes, you know, often monks and nuns get together and have meetings and running monasteries is complicated business. And, and uh, you know, sometimes I've heard it said, so, uh, you know, I'd like a decision by the end of this meeting. You know, an important matter. We're going to start a new monastery. And somebody comes in with, I want a decision by the end of this meeting. I say, well, well, actually, we're not ready to make a decision yet. Well, when will you be ready to make a decision? We'll be ready when we're ready. It's like, the, when are you going to be ready to eat? <laughs> so, well, I'll be ready to eat when I'm ready to eat. I mean, we know. So we ask ourselves, do I feel ready to say this? And this is a way of cultivating a mindfulness around offering criticism. You know, do I feel ready? Do I sense the other person is ready to hear? It's like with shooting off emails, critical emails or letters. It's something that I personally have learnt uh, pretty much, I'm sure, I, I don't do it because I certainly don't like getting them. It's, it's so easy just to send off some critical comment to somebody and, and flash is gone and you can't change your mind. You know, Like with writing a letter, well, it's sitting in the out tray before it gets posted and you say, oh, actually, I shouldn't have written that. And so you go and retrieve the letter, but with emails, well, we all know what it's like. And so it's even more important to stop there. Do I feel this is the right time, right place? You know, like you're pointing something out to somebody that's critical, criticism, and I know if these, uh, these young monks and Anagarikas, they're finding fault with me, and I've got plenty of fault, so it's understandable they all want to criticize me from time to time. Well, if they do it in the middle of puja, like if somebody right now said, Ajahn, I think you're talking a load of rubbish, wouldn't go down very well. Wrong place, uh, wrong time. And uh, So if they think I'm talking a load of rubbish, well... They can come to my kuti and probably they want to, you know, choose the time very carefully <laughs> because they want me to understand and that's, you know, they want me to hear. And so not just reacting with criticism and not taking a position against and say, oh, we're supposed to be practicing contentment so I should never be critical. Well, that's idealistic again. Of course we have criticisms. So how do we offer criticism? Right time, right place, right words. You know, like the kind of words that we use and stop and just just be careful, reflective. And, um, you know, one of the things in, in, in pointing out faults to somebody that we train ourselves to do is, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with, that uh, when you're trying to point out something to somebody, it's helpful if if we we say, well, actually, this is how it seems to me, you know, you know, rather than coming to them and just say, you do this and you do that. And now I, I know, I mean, this is, for those of you who have been around for a while, this is all very obvious. You, you know, one doesn't use accusative language if you want somebody to listen to what you're saying. You know, if you do, then the chances are there's a, a less chance that they'll hear. You know, they're going to get all defensive immediately. Well, it can just be as simple as, as choosing our words more carefully. 
paying attention to these things, right time, right place, right words, right motivation. Perhaps that should come first. I don't know what, how the Buddha put it, whether it was a right motivation first, but certainly checking to see that we're coming from a place of kindness. When we're inflamed with indignation, even if we're right, if we come from a place of, of resentment, of unkindliness, then that's what they'll hear. So in uh, the cultivation of, of uh, contentment, uh, it's not the case that, that we're not allowed to be critical. Of course we feel criticism, but it's, is it possible to voice our criticisms without compromising our commitment to contentment? I think it is. I think if, we, if we're mindful of this, you know, if we just recognize that the, the conscious choice to turn to contentment, instead of believing in the discontent, instead of believing in, in what those people who are rioting about today in Newcastle or whatever else there is happening out there that's, that's so, uh, so unfortunate, so unattractive, so inhuman, really. Instead of contributing to all that, instead of playing that game, we can restrain ourselves from that and, and just make the conscious choice. Say, no, I'm going to be contented with this. And then not add, not add the negativity to the situation. I think last time I, I spoke about uh, conscious contentment, I, I might have mentioned uh, my good friend uh, in the monastery in Perth, Ajahn Brahma Wongso. He was uh, telling me uh, last time I visited with him how um, he had put himself on this six-month solitary retreat in his kuti. And all the monks were helping him have this solitary time for his really to really deepen his practice. And, and so they're just putting some food outside his door every day. And I think the deal was that if he didn't collect it for five days, they'd come in and get him, something like that. Anyway, they weren't to disturb him under any circumstances outside of five days of not eating and so he was telling me how he was in there in the beginning. It was just, it was absolutely wonderful. It was like everything he wanted. He had just, everything was there. He had the bathroom, had the choir, had the solitude, had nobody, no business, no duties, nothing. And it was just really attractive. And for a while, for a few days, he just, it was just marvelous. He really, really enjoyed it. But after a few days, he, you know, he started noticing this kind of, he just wasn't happy. You know, he's a very happy fellow. Generally, Anjan Brahm, as we call him, very happy fellow. But he wasn't happy. He was restless, and he was looking at this and looking at that. And, and, and then he told me he just he just recognised that there was this this state of discontentment had set in, and so he just made a conscious choice. He says, "I'll be contented. I'll just be contented with this." I mean, it wasn't as if there was something terrible irritating him. It wasn't as if something difficult. You know, presumably it was just the change, you know, change in momentum and you know, not, things not being the way he was used to and the mental processes and the activity of the body-mind you know, significantly adjusted and so there's this restlessness. And, but instead of believing in it, which he could do, he just made the conscious choice and you say, be contented, even with restlessness. Even when we find ourselves feeling discontented, if we find ourselves feeling indignant, if we fail at our practice of contentment, 
we can still turn to this principle and say, no, I'm not going to add to this. And we don't have to. In the beginning, this, is, of course, is just theory. But if we uh, take this theory on, take it seriously and, and contemplate it, well, and that's the way the theory of Dhamma works. You know, that's why you know, the traditional teaching of you know, stages of pariyati, pati, 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 vedi, the, the study, the practice, the realization. The, of course, if all we do is pariyati, if all we do is study and we don't actually practice what's being taught, well, then that's not the point. We may have a lot of information about the teachings but not actually practice them and then not realize anything. But on the other hand, if we try to practice without any study, well, that's also unfortunate. And so the encouragement is to take on the theory, study, like, for instance, this in here, you know, we catch ourselves getting caught up in discontent and wonder how can we do something about this rather sad affair that we find ourselves in. So listen to this contemplation about the cultivation of contentment. And okay, even if it is just theory, we take the theory on, we take the theory seriously, and then little by little the form is there, and then little by little the spirit follows. And we actually start to find the strength, we find the ability to be contented, even with discontentment. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Andamayana Namavada Kataya Sadhukar